This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and I am not joined by Rachel Sass, but we'll get to that in just a second. Um, I am now stateside, having finally returned from Spain. I got stuck in Spain for a few days because of COVID, uh, but thankfully I didn't have any sort of uh, bad case or bad symptoms or anything like that. Uh, But I just had to wait out getting the right negative test or negative COVID test so that I could fly back to the States. And so... Fortunately, last week I finally did that, and I'm uh, I'm back on firm ground here. So, Rachel, my dear friend, is on maternity leave. She has had her baby, and everybody's doing great, uh, thankfully. And she's just enjoying being a mom to a very very cute little baby. So, she also had planned to change jobs at the end of January after her. It, and then that would extend into her maternity leave. And then after her maternity leave, start up with the new job. So she's going to be working at the town of Marana in their attorney's office. And all of that probably means that uh, Rachel's not going to be a, a frequent guest on the podcast. Doesn't mean that she won't be on the podcast in the future, but she won't be joining me as frequently as she has in the past on the podcast. So, you know, I, I couldn't thank her enough for all of the the help and the time and the expertise and the ideas and the uh, the association that she gave to the podcast and getting it up and running and getting things going and getting sort of the design and the look and the feel and the sound and everything that it is right now. But um, she's kind of moving on to a new phase of her life. Could not have been leaving, uh, working with me day in, day out on better terms. Uh, I am absolutely her biggest fan and she's a fantastic lawyer and she's going to do great with the town of Marana. They're going to be really lucky to have her. So, um, all the best of luck to her and all the best of luck to her new little family, which hopefully she's just enjoying day to day and, and really getting to spend that nice quality time with her new baby and her husband. So, uh, we'll wish her the best and hopefully we'll see her very soon. Uh, or at least I hopefully will see her very soon, uh, socially and personally, and and then maybe in the future she'll be on the podcast to, to talk about things that will be relevant to what she's doing in the future. So, um, but the podcast itself is going to continue. I have no designs on not doing the podcast again in the future, so uh, the podcast, podcast is going to continue uh, once a week, so everybody can get a podcast podcast fix. And I guess so I can get uh, all the words that need to come out of my mouth, out of my mouth uh, and into this little can that I speak into on a weekly basis. So I thought this week uh, I would talk a bit about charitable remainder trusts. Part of that is because um, they they kind of come up with some frequency for me. And I know they're they're a popular tool and they come up with some frequency for a lot of our listeners. And so I thought maybe I could dig into charitable remainder trust just a little bit, maybe in slightly more detail um, than we've done in the past, and we've talked we've talked about them in past episodes. Uh, but this might be an opportunity just to kind of dig into them just 
a little in a little meatier basis uh, so that uh, you get a feel for exactly how they work and how they function uh, and in the varieties that they come in so the charitable remainder trust if you're not aware is a trust that is set up with two different interests and during the lifetime or during a period of years uh, lifetime of one or more people and period of years being some number of years less than than 20 or not more than 20 uh, the trust will pay either an annuity amount or a uni trust amount okay and it's going to pay this annuity amount or this uni trust amount to one or more individuals and the annuity amount is a fixed dollar amount okay and it can be it can be stated in the trust as a fixed dollar amount it could be stated as a percentage it can be stated as a fraction but it, ultimately it's going to be a fixed dollar amount so it could be a a percentage of the original contribution and that gives you the annuity amount or it could be a fraction of the original contribution that gives you the the dollar amount but it, it's just a fixed dollar amount okay and every year it's the same amount of money and it's never uh, it never changes it's always the same amount of money with the uni trust it's a little bit different so with the uni trust there's always a percentage that applies so there's some percentage and the percentage is applied to the value of the trust assets every year. So if in year one, the value is $100, it's going to be a percentage of $100. And that's the amount that's going to be paid out to this individual for their or one other person's lifetimes or for a set number of years. If in year two, the value of the trust assets is $10,000, then the unitrust amount for year two or the payment amount for year two is going to be some percentage of $20,000 of that higher value of the trust. So every year the trust assets get revalued and then you apply this percentage and then that tells you how much money has to be paid out of the trust in that year to this individual or individuals. Okay, that's the uni trust and the percentage is a fixed number. So it's a fixed percentage year over year. And you pick the percentage or you pick the dollar amount for the annuity amount in the first year that you set up the trust. So once you set it up, that's the amount that's going to apply. Um, there are some actuarial rules that also apply. And they basically say that the annuity or the, the uni trust amount on an actuarial basis cannot be worth more than 90% of what's originally contributed into the trust. So on an actuarial basis, it can't be worth more than 90 cents on the dollar of the total value of what was put in the trust originally. To say that in reverse, uh, because at the end of the two life expectancies or the number of years, the balance of the trust has to be, out, be paid out to charity. So to say it in reverse, the value of what's going to be paid to charity must be at least 10% of the value of what's originally contributed to the trust. Okay. With the annuity type of trust, it goes by its own name. It's a Charitable Remainder Annuity Trust or CRAT, C-R-A-T, CRAT. And then the uni trust is a Charitable Remainder Uni Trust. It goes by CRUT, C-R-U-T, CRUT. So if you ever hear somebody say CRAT or CRUT, that's what they're referring to. They're just both Charitable Remainder Trusts, okay? You cannot make more than one contribution to a CRAT. So with the CRAT, you're going to make one contribution in the first year. That's it. No more contributions can be made to the trust. 
With a CRUT, you can make more than one contribution to the trust. So you could make a contribution in year one, and then a contribution in, say, year five, and then a contribution in, say, year seven, if you wanted to, and the term of the trust was long enough to let you do it. So and the reason that works is that with the CRAT, you're paying out a very specific dollar amount. So you can't really be contributing more money into the trust because no more money is going to be added to the annuity amount. And there's some rules about the splitting of interests in, in charitable contributions. And you really can't, outside of having a set dollar amount in these annuity payments from the CRAT, you can't really split interests in property and then take a charitable contribution deduction. So they don't allow you, via the regulations, they don't allow you to make contributions to a CRAT after the first year. Once you've done the initial contribution, that's it. With a CRAT, it's different. With a CRAT, you can always make additional contributions if you want. And then there are special rules that tell you how you then calculate the CRAT amount for the year of the additional contribution because it's the credit amount is just a percentage of the value of the assets. Well, if the value of the assets have, has gone up during the year, then there's some some sort of reconciliation that has to be done within the trust. And there are very specific rules in the regulations that tell you how to do that. In addition, the charitable remainder trust needs to have an actual charity as the beneficiary at the end. And it can come in a couple of different varieties. And because charities come in different types of charities, but ultimately it's going to be a charity that qualifies as a 501c3 charity, okay? 501c3 charity. And 501c3 charities can be public charities or they could be private foundations. And a public charity generally is a charity that receives at least a third of its contributions from the general public uh, or from the government through grants, for example. So uh, it doesn't have large, it may have large donors, but the donors aren't more than, say, 67% of the contributions to the charity. If they were, then it would be a private foundation. And private foundations also come in a number of varieties. They're operating private foundations and non-operating private foundations, and they all get treated slightly different under the tax rules. And all that's way beyond this particular discussion. But included in that list of things is what's called a donor advice fund because a donor advice fund is a public charity and it's very popular for certainly for our clients and for other people that we see to set up a donor advice fund to be the beneficiary on a charitable remainder trust uh, because the donor advice fund is essentially your family's charitable fund and you can set up controls on that fund where you and the family can run it quote run it um in the future, you can advise on how the money is going to be used by the charity that sponsors this donor-advised fund, okay? And the ins and outs of donor-advised funds is just a little bit beyond the scope of what we're talking about today, but that might be a topic for another day. Uh, and I know we've talked about it in the, in the past, too, on, on past episodes. But what that all means is that the grantor of the trust, the person creating the trust, has a lot of leeway to pick charities. And in fact, the rules that the IRS has set out allow the grantor to retain the power to change the charity in the future. So long as they're kind of swapping like for like, you can change the charity in the future. So you don't want to be swapping, say, public charities for private foundations and vice versa, because uh, there are some differences in the charitable contribution deductions that you take up front. But as long as you're swapping out like for like, you can swap out charities and you can retain that authority. The, the downside to retaining the authority, if there is one, is that it causes the gift to be an incomplete gift into the trust for gift tax purposes. 
usually it's not an issue because it's not a gift tax play anyways. It's not a, it's not a gifting problem anyways, but uh, technically that's what happens. But you can retain that authority. And I'd say nine times out of 10, <clears throat> that's exactly what we do because we want our clients to have the ability to change the charity. And, and from time to time they do. So the trust itself can also have the grantor as the trustee. And usually when you're setting up an irrevocable trust, you don't want the grantor to be a trustee because there are some estate tax issues where if the grantor then died under some circumstances, if they're the trustee, the assets of the trust could be included in their estate for estate tax purposes, and then they might have to pay estate tax. However, with the charitable remainder trust, yes, the assets in the trust will be included in the grantor's estate when they die for estate tax purposes, but it'll be included it'll be included at the value of those assets on the day they die. And all of those assets based on the trust are being paid out to charity. So you get a charitable deduction against estate tax. And therefore there's no issue with the grantor um, being the trustee of the trust. They can pick somebody else to be the trustee as well. Um, so that's also possible, but the, the grantor can be their own trustee. So think about that. The grantor could set up the trust. They can be their own trustee. They get paid this annuity amount or uni trust amount, say for a number of years. And at the end of the at the end of those number of years, whatever's left in the trust gets paid out to their own donor advised fund. That's a pretty good deal. And when they put money into the trust, they get to take in the year of the contribution, a charitable contribution deduction for income tax purposes, maybe not for gift tax purposes, if they retain the ability to change the uh, charitable beneficiary, but that's typically not an issue. Um, and I'll explain when it could be an issue, but they then uh, are going to take this deduction in the year that they set up the trust equal to the actuarial value of the charity's interest in that first year. So I was, you remember I was describing how the actuarial value of what's going to the charity has to be at least 10% of the contribution. Well, it could be more than 10%. It just depends on the math and what amount of annuities you're paying out to the grantor or what percentage of unit trust payments you're going to be paying to the grantor and then whether the trust lasts for a lifetime or two lifetimes or, or up to 20 years or less. So just depending on all those factors, the math will tell you what the value down to the penny is of the charitable interest and the day that you make the contribution. If you put in assets that are difficult to value, which is possible, but if you put in assets that are difficult to value, then a couple of things happen. You need to get an appraisal by a qualified appraiser, somebody who is actually licensed to do the appraisal that you need. And they have to give you a real appraisal report. And that's as true in the initial year as it would be in every other year after that if it's a uni trust uh, type trust. So if it's a CRUT, you need to have this qualified appraiser tell you what the value is year over year. But certainly in the first year to take your contribution deduct your charitable contribution deduction, you need that qualified appraisal for any difficult to value assets, not cash. So it's not, you know, difficult to value being not cash, not marketable securities, uh, you know, stocks and bonds that are openly traded, mutual funds that are that are traded or have a ready value. Um, but everything else, you need this qualified appraisal. That does undercut a bit the types of assets you might be motivated to put in the trust and then the types of assets you might be motivated to hold on to in the trust. Because if you have to get this appraisal every year, it increases the cost of the trust. But you might be thinking, well, why would somebody want to put difficult to value assets in a CRAT or a CRAT anyways? Well, the answer to the question is typically that the CRAT or CRAT itself is not a taxable entity. It is a charitable trust. It does not pay tax. 
And so very frequently, difficult to value assets might be contributed to the trust that have appreciated in value. And then at some point in the future, the trust could sell those assets to receive liquidity, cash or stocks or bonds or something just liquid uh, from the sale. But because it doesn't pay any tax, the trust can reinvest those funds on a gross basis, a, a, a non-tax basis. Okay, So if $100 is paid for the difficult-to-value asset, the trust gets to reinvest $100 rather than, say, $70 like an individual who might have to pay capital gains at the federal and state level on the $100 they received. The trust doesn't have to do that. It pays no capital gains, so it gets to reinvest $100. Well, if you have a uni trust, a CRET, that can be a really good deal because then the investments will grow more than they would have if the grantor had retained those investments in the grantor's own hands. Only difference being that in the Unitrust, the grantor's not going to get back 100% of the money, but they might be able to get back 90% of the proceeds over time. So then, even though the trust is not paying tax, the trust keeps track of the tax items that it's accumulating over time long-term capital gain, short-term capital gain, interest income, tax-free interest income. It keeps track, you know, rental income, if it had any, royalties, if it had any. It keeps track of all these different types of income, and it puts them into different buckets. And the buckets get sorted by the highest tax rate items down to the lowest tax rate items, which be no tax. Then when the trust pays out the annuity or pays out the unitrust amount to the grantor or other person every year, the payment out carries out on a dollar-for-dollar basis the highest taxed item right off the top and then down the line to the grantor or other person. And then the grantor or other person, they pay tax on that amount based on its characterization as one of these items. So if there was a $100 payment and the trust had $50 of long-term capital gain and $50 of interest income, the $100 payment to the grantor would carry out $50 of capital gains, long-term capital gains, and $50 of interest. Uh, sorry, it would have been in the reverse because interest is taxed at ordinary income tax rates. But at any rate, the numbers would be this, the numbers would be the same. Um, so in essence, the taxation of the tax items of the trust is deferred until it's actually paid out to an individual, and then that individual will pay tax on those items on their own 1040. Again, uh, you might be asking yourself, well, why would somebody want to do that? Well, if the trust is holding an appreciated asset and it has now sold the appreciated asset, so it's generated, say, a capital gain. When it pays back the payments to the grantor, which could be up to 90% of the value, um, the grantor is not going to pay capital gains on the entire amount of gain in year one. The grantor is going to pay capital gains as and when the money is actually paid out to the grantor. And so there could be some deferral and some significant deferral of payment of the capital gains. And in the meantime, the balance of the money not being paid out to the grantor is being reinvested inside the trust. And if it's an annuity trust, that reinvestment potentially could be to the benefit of the charity, and that might be exactly what the grantor wants. Or if it's a uni trust, that reinvestment, if it's successful, could be to the benefit of the grantor because the percentage of a larger number is going to be a larger number. So they're going to get paid back even more money um, on a on a dollar basis, not on a percentage basis, because the percentage doesn't change. So I mentioned one one area where uh, not having the transaction being completed for gift tax purposes can be an issue or somewhat of an issue. So again, if the grantor retains the ability to change the remainder beneficiary, the charitable beneficiary at the end of the trust, then 
the grantor will be deemed to have not made a, quote, completed gift. And that just means no gift has been made for tax purposes, for gift tax purposes, I should say. Well, if one of the individuals or the individual who's a beneficiary of the trust is a family member that's not the spouse uh, of the grantor, so let's say the grantor names their child as the person who's going to get the annuity payments, then setting up the trust does not cause <clears throat> excuse me, does not cause an immediate gift because the gift is, quote, incomplete. But as and when annuity payments are paid to the child, not only is the annuity payment at that time carrying out taxable items to the child potentially, but the annuity payment and the amount of the annuity payment is a gift at that moment from the grantor to the child. So the grantor would be uh, reporting these gifts uh, when the annuity payments are being made in the future. So that's maybe the one downside. There's a little bit of a timing element. But very frequently with charitable remainder trusts, the beneficiary who is the is receiving the annuities or receiving the unitrust amount is actually the grantor themselves. It could be the grantor and their spouse, uh, but very often it's the grantor themselves and it's not some other person. And so there's no gift because money's coming back to you. You can't make a gift to yourself. You, have to, you can only make a gift to another person. So the gift tax issue is very frequently not a problem, but it is, it is a consideration when you have an individual who's receiving the annuity payments who's not the grantor and not the grantor's spouse. Um, so you just have to be aware of that dynamic. The other thing is that the, the actuarial calculations are based on the, quote, 75-20 rate, which is 120% of the midterm applicable federal rate. You can pick the applicable federal rate for the year that you set up the charitable remainder trust or the two, or sorry, the month that you set up the charitable remainder trust or the two prior months. So you get to pick and choose between three, three rates, but you just pick the one that's the most beneficial. Well, it turns out the one that's the most beneficial is the highest uh, because that will overvalue the charitable remainder or the charitable interest and or it will make the charitable interest look like it's worth more money because the calculations assume that money in the trust is going to grow at the 75-20 rate. And therefore, uh, you're going to get more of a charitable deduction for what you put in, like being like. You know, the terms of the trust being identical with one interest rate, you might get a, a lower deduction than with a higher interest rate, you get a higher charitable deduction. In addition to that, because of the requirement that the the remainder interest be at least ten percent. The uh, lower the the seventy five twenty rate, the more difficult it is to stretch out the term of the trust over a very long period of time. Because if you stretch it out for a very long period of time, like for example the life expectancy of a fifty year old. Um, you're going to run, you're possibly going to run out of, of room if it's particularly if it's a charitable remainder annuity trust. You're going to run out of room valuation wise to get 10% to the charity. And so there are sometimes some actuarial uh, considerations that need to be thought through when the trust is being structured to sort out what time period can this actually be in order to fit within this 10% rule or 90% rule, depending on how you view it, like I was mentioning previously. So there's a couple of little caveats to uh, charitable remainder trusts and appreciated assets, particularly appreciated assets that are going to be sold in the future. One transaction that the IRS views as particularly abusive is if you have an asset that you're full well planning on selling, and it might even be that you've negotiated the sale already, 
You may even be under contract. And then you attempt to shift that asset into a charitable remainder trust and then close the deal with the asset inside the charitable remainder trust. And then you try to take a charitable contribution deduction and pay no capital gain on the transaction, claiming that the charitable remainder trust is a tax-free entity. The IRS doesn't like those transactions and the IRS views it as instead you having sold the asset and then contributed the proceeds from the sale to the charitable remainder trust, meaning you got the capital gains into your hands and you have to pay tax on the capital gains. So the the caveat to using appreciated assets that are going to be sold within the trust doesn't mean that it can't be done. It just means that care needs to be taken, that this is not an asset that's under contract to be sold or there's a deal to, to sell it now, meaning if you're going to do the transaction, you need to be more forward thinking. You need to contribute the asset well ahead of any sale so that there's sufficient time between when you originally contribute the asset to the trust and the sale such that the IRS wouldn't be able to use the tools at its disposal to try to, to tie the two transactions together for tax purposes. And so some care needs to be taken when you're doing that transaction. So just a little bit of a a little bit of a caveat. You got to be you got to be cautious. These are not uh, instruments that you want to be overly aggressive on. Yeah, there's nothing wrong at all with doing plain vanilla boring transactions because plain vanilla boring transactions typically don't get questioned by the IRS, and you don't have the heartache of being questioned and audited by the IRS over them. So um, there's not always benefit to pushing the envelope too far. Charitable charitable remainder trusts. Uh, can come in the sort of plain vanilla for versions that I just described. They can also come as what are called flip trusts, a flip charitable remainder trust. And a, with a flip trust, there's some triggering event. It needs to be an ascertainable event, like a number of years or like a very specific thing that you like. You know when it happens. Um, and then that triggering event turns the trust into uh, a charitable remainder trust that starts paying out, for example. Um and again, you might be thinking, well, why would you want to do that? Well, let's say, again, you had an appreciated asset, you put it in the trust, but you don't want that asset or you don't want that trust really to be paying you money until something happens. You retire, they sell the asset, whatever. And so in the future, when that event happens, when you do want the stream of income coming back to you, that's when the trust would flip. That's when it would start making the payments. And there are specific regulations that describe uh, how to do those trusts. And there's IRS guidance about how to do those types of trusts. In addition, the trust could be set up in a way that says that it has what's called a net income makeup provision. And net income makeup provision basically says the following. If if the annuity amount is less than the income of the trust in one year, you would track the amount that the income was deficient in that year. And in the future, if there is income that exceeds the annuity amount, you can pay out equal to the deficiency in the prior years, you can pay out the additional income for the deficiency from the prior years. And so this is a, it's a little bit of a strange concept, but the idea is that your payment is always going to be equal to whatever the annuity or unitrust amount is or the income of the trust. And so you can create a quote income stream. Well, income for these purposes is what's called trust accounting income or fiduciary accounting income. It's income for trust administrative accounting purposes. It's not income in the income tax sense. And there are very specific statutes. There's a uniform statute called the Principal and Income Act that most jurisdictions have. And it tells you 
what items of a trust are, quote, income and what items of a trust are, quote, principal, which is not income. And then sometimes the trust itself can give the trustee the ability to allocate items to income or principal. Well, if you can do that, then it gives you some degree of control over what the income is. You might, the trustee might not have total control over what the, quote, income is, but it gives the trustee some degree of control over the income items. I don't think it's the type of thing where you'd want to be exerting abusive control. Um, so I think trustees would be wise, typically, to only exert this kind of control in a way that is reasonable, in a way that is consistent, in a way that tracks the, the normal administration of the trust. So they're not going out of their way to create um, unusual circumstances of income. But I think as long as the trustee is acting reasonably, they will have discretion to determine in some years what the income would be. And so it gives you some degree of flexibility on how much money is going to be paid out of the trust from year to year. So that, that's sort of the bottom line there. There's a degree of flexibility with it. So this then means that when you're originally setting up the trust, you have to think through, well, what is it that we want to do with the trust? What's the ultimate aim? What sorts of controls do we want over the trust? And then bake all of those provisions into the trust document at the, at the outset. You're not going to be able to go back and amend the trust later. It needs to be in the trust from the off so that you have the terms in the document from day one. Um, but as long as you've thought it through, uh, then it works just fine. And ultimately, and this is the key, ultimately, when you set up a charitable remainder trust, you have to have charitable intent. So the charitable remainder trust really is a charitable vehicle. And you have to understand that ultimately the purpose of the trust is to get money that's left over to your charity. And so long as that is the actual goal, I think the motivations for how the trust is set up originally, what assets are put into the trust, and how the trust is administered will track that intent. And you're usually going to be in the good. Okay. Um, just one more word on a couple of assets that are not so good for charitable remainder trusts. Okay, so number one, S-corporations. Charitable remainder trusts are not permissible S-corporation shareholders. So you don't want to put S-corporations into charitable remainder trusts. Number two, and it's particularly acute with partnership interests, but partnerships that are leveraged or have real estate that's leveraged, meaning there's debt on real estate because that that debt income on the, the the real estate with the debt on it when it's in the hands of a charitable entity like a charitable remainder trust can cause what's called unrelated business taxable income or unrelated business income tax. And so you could generate a circumstance where the trust is actually having to pay tax because in some cases, charities have to pay tax themselves, even though ordinarily they don't pay any tax when they have unrelated business taxable income and then they pay the unrelated business income tax. So they get taxed like a normal corporation, like they were a C corporation on that income. So usually that's to be avoided. So it's just, again, it's a little bit of a caveat. It just means that when these things get set up, you have to think through what are the terms going to be, who are the parties going to be, who will the charity be, and what assets are going into the trust, and are those assets appropriate assets for this trust. All right. Well, I'm going to leave it there. That's, that is a mouthful, and I'm sure probably more than most of you ever wanted to know about charitable remainder trusts. That is not even everything to know about charitable remainder trusts. 
Um, but they can be really handy tools. And at least having a high-level understanding of how they work and their little ins and outs gives you the ability to identify circumstances where they can be useful, for example, for yourself or for your clients. Uh, because until you understand sort of at least the broad overview, you won't be able to pick out the circumstances where it could be a very useful tool. So hopefully this is at least a helpful guide to get your head, your head kind of turned straight um, on these things and how they can be used and why they're used and why they're set up certain ways so that you can explain it to other people uh, and help them out and and uh, add value out in the world. And that's that's the ultimate goal here. All right, well, I'll leave it there. Thank you again so much for, for joining me. I know you have many better things to do than listen to me drone on about other topics, uh, random topics probably seemingly. Uh, so I very much thank you for spending the time with me. Hey, listeners, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com and follow me on social media at wealthandlaw. I'll see you there.